Now, for those of you, that, well, the two of you probably that are really paying attention, you, you see that we skipped over a section in Mark from where we've been on the journey. That's because uh, Lauren is preaching in that first section in Mark 10, and we swapped weeks uh, for a number of reasons. I think some of that is becoming clear to me, some is not. So here we go. Last week, hell. This week, wealth. Next week, divorce. You see the empty seats? We're just trying to fill them up. Our commitment here, at least mine for 12 years and shared with the elders, is to never gloss over any part of Scripture. That doesn't mean we won't, we won't teach topically and preach through important things, but we regularly simply go through God's Word and as we are feeling led and try to receive it all. Let it speak as it continues to speak and convict and encourage. God's Word will always do those two things if we receive them rightly because that's God's Word to us. Conviction that we can change, encouragement that it's possible, and that he leads us. There may not be a more important encounter for us in all of the Gospel of Mark, and I believe it does continue to speak powerfully and perhaps poignantly to us, nearly 2,000 years removed. Will we listen? Will we have ears to hear? We live on the east side of Seattle in 2022, one of the wealthiest regions in one of the wealthiest countries in the world in the history of the world. Seattle Metro has the third highest median household income of any large city in the country. On the east side, Bellevue, Redmond, Kirkland, Issaquah, Sammamish, uh, we could probably extend that further, but it is much higher. Sammamish, did you know, has the highest median household income of any city over 50,000 in the United States. If you live here or in this area and make over the median minimum annual rate in the country of 67,000, you may feel poor. So what does it really mean to have great wealth, great possessions, as we see in this man in the story? All of this man's money could not have bought some of the luxuries that we take for granted today. In fact, he may have lived in an in a estate or a relative palace with many servants, which would be nice. And he may have traded it all to have instant hot or cold drinkable water from multiple sources within his own home. Throw in an iPhone, a Tesla, he would be a god. We take certain things for Granted, the reality is in historic and global standards, you have great wealth if you turned a faucet and had hot water that you could shower in this morning. If then you had a choice of which clothes to wear and what might match. If you had a choice of which shoes to put on and were even digging through a pile trying to find the match to the one in your hand. If you pressed a few buttons and had hot coffee or breakfast, or rather said, maybe I'll skip breakfast and wait till lunch because I'm trying to lose weight. If you then checked the world and local news on a device that was in your pocket that you then held in your hand. If you then got into your car and drove here. Wealth is relative. What does it mean to have great wealth? God, grant us perspective on our wealth. Reveal what's in our heart. 
Show it to us, Lord. That's what he did for this man. That's what he offered. Perspective and a revelation of his heart, which he seems to do, Jesus does, in just about everyone who encounters him. So let us encounter Jesus this morning and see his heart as he reveals the heart of this rich man. I think we can learn a number of things, but more than what he probably teaches us, this man may be us, which is why I think this encounter is so vital for us today. It's possible that this man is even more spiritual than us, though he walks away from Jesus in this moment sad. Let's be humble enough to consider that and continue to ask, as Mark wants us to, who am I in the story? Where am I in this journey of coming to Jesus or following Jesus? That's the way he presents all of these encounters. It's the right question for us to ask. Let's notice a few things as we slow down through this encounter. I think there's a lot here. First, the man comes running to Jesus, and he falls on his knees before him. When was the last time we had spiritual longing that could be described as running to God? Running to Jesus. When and how often is our heart posture, if not our actual posture, on our knees before him, seeking him? And he shows us this posture. I think there's more going on here, but I think we honor at least the running to Jesus and the posture before him. Others throughout Mark's story that fell to their knees before Jesus. In Mark chapter 1, the leper. In Mark chapter 5, three times, a theme that we saw in that chapter, the man possessed by demons, Jairus, whose daughter had just died, and the woman who had the, the discharge of blood for many years. They all were on their knees before Jesus. What, did that, what do those represent? And then this man here, they were desperate for Jesus' healing, for his touch. They were desperate for something Jesus could bring. And apparently this man, too, is looking for something from Jesus, perhaps more from him than to follow him. And that might be evident in the response and the exchange. We would be humble to ask the same. Are we often coming to Jesus for what he can give to us or bring to us rather than to follow him and to his ways, to be with him? Jesus' response seems odd at first, doesn't it? When he says, good teacher, tell me. And he interacts and Jesus responds, why do you call me good? Of course, Jesus is good. So there's, there's something in this exchange that I believe Jesus saw right through the facade, right to the heart. Perhaps, as some have suggested, there, there's some kind of banter happening here in a, in a greeting that, that this man would have expected in return from Jesus. Oh, good rabbi. Yes, my good man. Some kind of uh, mutual sign of honor or respect because this man was, was rich and wealthy, uh, was a ruler, uh, according to other accounts. So he had much under his possession, and many would try to curry favor with the rich. There weren't that many extremely wealthy people in that day. Many lived in relative poverty day to day. Something in this exchange that Jesus wanted to unsettle from the beginning and say, we're not doing that. I'm going to come to your level. I'm going to meet you where you are. He sees right to his heart. But we're not going to do the the flattery. We're going to get at, at the request and at your heart and make that No, and I think there's a few clues that show the man's heart. I think they're subtle but revelatory. Right in that first question, two things. What must I do to inherit? First, what must I do? Revealing that he believes a relationship with Jesus and potentially a relationship with God is transactional. 
There's something that he can do to receive from Jesus. How often do we come to Jesus like that? Just tell me what to do. I'll do anything in those moments of desperation. Revealing that our heart believes we can do something to receive, to earn healing, salvation, blessing. That's a religious posture. It's a posture of a life under God, not a life desiring to be with God, which is God's primary heart to be with his creation. This man seems poised to act. Though he's on his knees, he's ready to say, just tell me, give me the word, just like I would give my servants, and I will do it to receive eternal life. It's interesting that he speaks of eternal life. In all of Mark's gospel, Jesus mentions eternal life one time, later in chapter 10. He does seem to refer to the age to come, a a much future age. That's when uh, that phrase, and it's it's a Difficult, difficult phrase to probably even attach our words eternal life to it. It's used in multiple ways throughout the scriptures to actually have finite time. So it's an interesting one, and I won't go fully into that. But it's not the way, what we need to hear is it's not the way Jesus primarily speaks of life with him. You know, probably by now, he, he primarily speaks of life in the kingdom. The kingdom of God has come, walking in the kingdom. And that meant right now and extending into eternity. This phrase seems to speak of something only in the future, some future thing, which probably reveals the man's heart, what he's trying to secure. Now, if you had extreme wealth in that day, they're just, and for, for, for some of us who spent a lot of time and energy trying to secure our wealth and keep it, it was incredibly more difficult in that, in that age. There weren't systems and structures to do that. You had to spend a massive amount of energy to build the, your structures to support your wealth, to keep it and protect it. And really, everyone wanted a piece of it. Not that much different today, but if they couldn't curry favor with you to receive some form of financial blessing or help, they would feel justified to take it if they could. And so you were constantly on guard and battling to protect and secure and hold on to your wealth, your estate, your livelihood. I think that's what's being revealed here is this man is saying, I want something more. And I think Jesus could bring it in the form of what he calls eternal life. But he's revealing what's in many of our hearts is some form of ticket into that eternal life or insurance. I'll I'll do anything for that. So there's already, he's revealing that he desires something more than earthly wealth. There there must be something more to life than this. And maybe this man, Jesus, will, will give it to me and bring it. Say the word. Now, he didn't expect what Jesus was going to say back to him. It's interesting. Jesus teaches the only way to secure our life is to enter the kingdom of God, to walk with him. And that will require laying down our life, giving up our security, losing our life ultimately to follow him, something he's just recently taught about. Unless you will take up your cross as I am going to Jerusalem to take up mine, You will not gain life. The way that that Jesus and then Mark presents the gospel, the good news, is that we can enter God's kingdom, therefore life and life abundantly now. And it's not by action. It's not by doing. It's receiving. It's turning. It's repenting. Right? The gospel opens up. Mark 1, 15. The time is fulfilled, Jesus said. The kingdom of God is at hand. 
Repent and believe the gospel. This man says, what must I do to inherit? Jesus speaks of repenting and receiving again and again. In Mark chapter 4, verse 11 and following, Jesus says, to you, the disciples, has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything's in parables to them. They may indeed see, but not perceive. They may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. So you hear what it takes to receive the kingdom, to perception, understanding, turning. These aren't actions. These aren't taking. The parable of the sower then follows this teaching to bring it to life, that those who hear God's word accept it, receive it, allow it to take root and grow. It's organic and natural. It's not transactional. It's not taken. It's not seized. Now, many times Jesus speaks of entering the kingdom of God and and entering life as a parallel. The passage we looked at last week in Mark chapter 9, 47. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes and be thrown into Gehenna. We looked at that some intensity last week. Perhaps most telling is the passage immediately preceding this one, which Mark read, chapter 10, verse 14, when Jesus saw what the disciples were doing to restrict the little children from coming to him, he, said he was indignant, preached on this a little bit, uh, the first, first week of January on childlike faith. Jesus says, let the little children come to me, do not hinder them, for such belongs the kingdom of God, Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. So hear those words as contrasted to what must I do? Which sometimes is the cry of our heart. Come, belong, receive, enter. Very different tone. This man is revealing what's on his heart. Now he says, what must I do to inherit? I, I, it's, it's hard not to assume that this man's whole wealth came from inheritance. That's likely how wealth was passed down, especially since we know he was a young man, according to Matthew's account. Young may be relative in term. Maybe he was in his upper 20s or low 30s. The older I get, I say, yes, that's, that, that is young. That's young, and some of you are nodding, yes. Young and immature, but thus we don't think when we are that age. We think we are a man, which he makes very clear to Jesus. Since I was a boy, no longer I'm not a boy, I'm a man. But he is young, and likely that means he's inherited his great wealth from his father, his father's estate, his father's business. Perhaps his father died or was killed in some way. And now he is the heir and he has taken over. He probably has many, he's called a ruler in another passage, so he has many servants or a large business at work beneath him. And so if his whole life, is, his whole wealth came from inheritance, it makes sense that he's going to Jesus saying, what must I do to inherit from you? Perhaps he's feeling, a, the more I read this and look at this, I wonder if there's a sense of fraud within him, insecurity, this imposter syndrome. He's trying to prove himself and his worth because he, actually he's done nothing to gain this kind of wealth or status or position. It was all given to him by his birthright. And so perhaps he is now trying to prove himself by currying favor as others tried to with him in networking with Jesus 
I will be seen before Jesus, this rabbi. I will be seen more spiritual. What must I do to gain from you, to be blessed by you? I'm a religious man. I want to be known as one. Because he knows that his worth is actually not tied to his wealth. It's something else. He's trying to find it or prove it or gain it. Perhaps in his position or his reputation. We still speak in this term, don't we? How much is he or she worth? What is their net worth? And what do we mean? Finances, wealth. It's just parlance for us. That's not where our worth comes from. And we all know that, and we still speak of that in terms of our society. Not much has changed. Now, amazingly, Jesus loves this man. We'll get to that even in more detail in a moment, because I think it's so critical to see that. He loves this man, which means this man has greater worth than any treasure he could have had in the bank, than anything he could have possessed, because Jesus has now honored him as loved, beloved, and invites him to follow him, something money could not buy. Jesus engages him right where he is in order to lead him to that place, to give him opportunity to respond. He says, what must I do? It's interesting. Jesus quotes some from the Ten Commandments. Commandments 5 through 9, a little bit out of order, Jesus, so I guess it's okay. Interesting that most of them are don't do's. What must I do? Well, don't do these things. <laughs> Maybe making a point that it's not about what you do. The one do, honor your father and mother. Did he know this man so well that he knew that he had fulfilled these? It's interesting the ones he leaves out. Now, possibly it's just the summary. Of, this is a way of summarizing the Ten Commandments like we would summarize other lists. You know, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, and the rest. We always stop right there before the patience, don't we? We don't even want to just, it's not even there. Impatient to get on to the rest of the word. So perhaps Jesus is simply summarizing, but I think it's intentional when you look at the ones that are left out. He's focusing on the interaction between him and others. He leaves out commandment number 10 from the list. Do not covet. Because this man's response is, all of these I have kept. Could he have said that if he listed covetousness? He could have just started with commandment number one. You'll have no other gods before me, God says. And this man clearly had an idolatrous heart that held value in his wealth. Though he knew it was not enough. It was intertwined with his very identity, I believe. I think another the subtle revelation of what this man was trying to prove when he says, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Trying to extend maybe his maturity or his age to Jesus. I've, I've followed faithfully for so long. Look at me. Again, a young man I see trying to prove his worth. And it, we can easily imagine kind of the rumor mill and the words of the community that this young man doesn't deserve it. He hasn't earned it. He has so much to grow into. And if he felt that, then he is trying to prove his worth before Jesus. Because at this time, many, in fact, crowds and crowds of people are coming and gathering around Jesus for his teaching. So this is probably a very visible moment. You just feel that insecurity and imposter syndrome bubbling maybe out of him. And I think of most of us, if we're honest, we can deeply relate. If you are resonating with that sense of Wanting more and wanting Jesus to bless and recognizing what might be in your heart. That's a soft heart. That's not a hard one. A soft heart that says, all that I have truly is from the Lord. 
This is the warning given in Deuteronomy 8, when God would bring his people into the land of abundance and fullness. The warning that comes is Deuteronomy 8, 17, beware, lest you say in your heart, it's by my power and the might of my hand that I've gotten this wealth. Beware, you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth. So all ability. And I think we still fall into that trap today. I worked harder than them. I had to pull myself up. I had to study harder, be more faithful, be more disciplined, be, more, uh, be a better steward, be more careful. And I did better than them. Beware, you shall remember the Lord your God. It is he who gives you all capacity mental and physical, all ability to gain anything that you have. Here's the crux of it, I think. This man has great wealth, but it's not enough. He wants more. He knows he needs more. He's not content. I think this is the core of his turmoil and this dilemma that he is, is torn by and he is downcast by and walks away from. He's longing for something, hoping it's found in Jesus, and what he could give. So we, we honor that longing. We probably resonate with that. We recognize, we know it up here in our head that it is not attached to earthly possessions and wealth. And yet we wonder how much of our wealth is tied to our heart. How much our wealth has our heart. What would happen if Jesus... We're to ask all from us. Is it possible this man had tasted of the, the best things of life, all that earthly riches could bring, found that it's not enough, just as so many do, and is looking for more? You know, the quote from C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity comes to mind. If we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. A different kingdom, a different ethic. Now, he may have called it eternal life, but I think he is striving for something more about his reputation, his position, maybe his wisdom that he wants to see affirmed. I will be affirmed by Jesus if I'm affirmed by this man for my spirituality. Then I can find some contentedness along with my wealth. And maybe he's trying to live up. Is it possible he's trying to make a name for himself? That his father's name was so long-standing and honored within that community as a rich man, maybe a benevolent man, that he's now, this young man is trying to measure up to his father to gain a name and prove his worth in that way, and maybe even surpass his father. So many of us are driven by that pursuit to make a name for ourselves that we would be honored or remembered, which is ironic because we do not even remember this man's name. It's not recorded, despite his wealth. He would have been known in that region, likely, by many. And his name doesn't come forward. Which is ironic, because Jesus invites him to follow. He invites him to be one of the, the, the small group. At this point, the 12, maybe he's going to be lucky number 13. His name would have been remembered. Had he laid down the things that Jesus was calling him to lay down. To follow him. Jesus doesn't, say, doesn't give that invitation to everyone who comes to him. But the very same phrase that he said to the fishermen by the shore, come, follow me, leave your nets, leave your livelihood, leave your business, come, follow me, I will make you. 
I will give you more than any, any, anything that that path can pursue and can bring. He says to this man, come, follow me. Remember in Mark chapter 5, the man who he healed with the, from the legion of, uh, of demonic oppression begged Jesus to go with him. Bring me with you. And Jesus said, no, you cannot come. Go, go home. Your testimony there is vital. He sent, sent him away. But this man is invited to have a name, to find his identity in Jesus that nothing in earthly life and no amount of wealth could buy. But he wanted both. He wanted to maintain his wealth. He was willing to give a lot, right? What must I do? Almost like, give me the number to write the check and I'll show you. I'll show everyone here how generous and benevolent I am also. Jesus said, all. Give all. Ironically, the one thing that he could not do. He couldn't leave his nets. They ensnared him. He couldn't trade something of lesser value ultimately for something of greater Remember the man in the parable that found the treasure in the field, went back and sold everything he had to buy that treasure. That's the picture of coming into the kingdom. When you see truly what the kingdom life brings, it's overwhelming. And the right response is to be willing to give up all to possess that. This man wants both, and he went away sad. What are our nets that entangle us, that we can't break free from, that we can't lay down, be it our wealth or our pride in proving our worth, measuring up our position, our power, our control, our security, or just the dreams of those things. We may want Jesus also, but not Jesus only. Mark eight thirty six. what good is it for a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? Jim Elliott did give up his life and famously said, he is no fool who gives up what he can never keep to gain what he can never lose. Jesus saw this man right to his heart and he knew what possessed his heart. But hear hear this, and this is where we need to focus in and receive in the midst of our own probably turmoil and wrestling Jesus looks at him and loves him. I hope you caught that when it was read or when you've read through this. It's the only time in the encounters as they're recorded also in Matthew and Luke that that this phrase comes in, this insight for Jesus. And the only way that that comes to Mark is Jesus and his disciples continue to talk about this. And Jesus told them how much he loved this man. I see him, I love him. He repeated that. He sees him and loves him. It's actually the only time in Mark that this phrase is even used, where Jesus looks at someone and says he loved him. Certainly Jesus loved many. But the fact that this is called out here, I think, is striking. And is so vital for us as we wrestle with those kinds of questions. What if Jesus asked me to lay down all and give to the poor? Now, you know in all of this, right, that To be a follower of Jesus, to be blessed by God, to be truly spiritual does not require giving away all of our wealth. Jesus blesses and honors the rich. In fact, gives more to some who are rich. It's not about that. But Jesus wants all of our heart. And Jesus knows that we can't serve both him and the world and the things that come from the world. He makes this clear again and again in Matthew 6. 
famous Sermon on the Mount, verse 19. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy. They will fade and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So as we wrestle with those kinds of questions that come from that passage, recognizing our own wealth, our relative wealth, whether we feel it or not, how much of it does our heart have? How much does our heart have God? Where is our true treasure? And what if I was on my knees before him saying, I will do anything. And he were to ask that of us. But we, I don't know how he answers those questions to you. But will we be humble enough to come to him and know that he loves us? He loves us more than we can possibly imagine. Now, what we don't know is the rest of this man's story. And I like to think that as the seed that Jesus planted there of eternal worth and eternal treasure was planted as he was a young man, that his story has a radical redemption moment in it that we will one day find out about. That that seed that was planted and maybe laid latent for a long time, that Jesus could possess everything of him and bring him the true abundant life as he continued to pursue the things and the ways of the world and found that they did not satisfy, they did not bring contentment, that eventually he would lay down all to walk in the kingdom. Because I believe that's possible. And I believe God has planted already seeds in our lives. Perhaps this is another one. I also am convicted that Jesus lets this man go. He does not go after him. He loves him deeply and lets him go away in his sorrow to remain in his wealth. However God speaks to us individually and collectively, may we be soft to receive it, to receive the invitation, because he says to every one of us, come, follow me, and I'll give you abundantly more than you can ever imagine. He does not say to every one of us, give away all and serve to the poor, but he wants all of our heart. Will he have it? He won't take it. Will we give it? Will we give as much as we can today? Will we pray like the desperate father does in, in Mark 9? I believe, help my unbelief. Let's bring this to our wealth and to our heart. God, I, I give you all that I have today. And help me with what I am not re yet ready to yield. I give you all of my heart. Help me bring you the rest. And that's what he's after. He sees you right now. And he loves you deeply. It will never change. And the invitation is there. To walk toward him and to walk with him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your abundant love and grace and mercy. Wherever we are in this, in this journey, whether we see ourselves right there at your knees or we are remembering moments of those kinds of prayers, of that kind of place, and we know what our response was. 
You're bringing us back again. Lord, we pray against the work of the enemy that would seed guilt or shame or condemnation. We rebuke that. Your word may convict, may be hard, but brings hope and encouragement. We too probably shake our heads like this man and say, I I can't yet do that. And are deeply sad. We want to do it all. We want to give you all. Thank you that you are faithful to walk with us and to never waver in your love for us. You are a good, good father. Help us to receive. Help us be in that posture today. You've given some of us, maybe all of us, abundantly more than we could ask or imagine. Bring that into perspective, we pray as we seek to be your stewards. You say, if we're faithful with a little, we'll be entrusted with more. So we know your heart is generosity and is abundance. Make it our heart also. Let us not hold to earthly things, but cling to you the abundant treasure of all. Unto your glory and for our joy we pray. Amen.